Well, everyone knows that an excellent story has an excellent ending. Uh, it might be an ending you weren't expecting, or maybe all the loose ends get tied together, and we expect that a really great story is going to end uh, very, very well. But have you ever considered how overlooked the very first sentence of a, a book is? The very first words of a book, they, they set the tone for, for what is to come throughout the rest of the story. There are a very few authors that can uh, compel you to connect to a story in the opening sentence. The 19th century author Charles Dickens really was a master at this, and at Christmas time, how can you uh, not get immediately sucked into a Christmas carol when it, the first words are talking about death? Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. And immediately, you're brought in to the world of Scrooge, the darkness of that time and the darkness of his soul, and starts in that sort of a way. But his most famous opening line probably came from his 1859 book called A Tale of Two Cities. Even if you have never read A Tale of Two Cities before, I guarantee you could say uh, the first part of the book. It starts off by saying, it was the best of times, it was... The worst of times, right. So you have that, but I doubt that many of us could recite, I can't even recite, uh, the rest that comes from this wonderful contrast that he gives of the social and political atmosphere of, of London and Paris at the time of the French Revolution. He starts off by saying it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And with those words, you're brought right in to Dickens' world. Now, our passage this morning is not a novel, thankfully, it's only seven verses. However, if we were to write an opening line to be the thesis of what Mark is trying to tell us this morning, we might say that this is the worst of glories and this is the best of glories. It is a display of foolishness and a display of wisdom. This is the definition of pride and the definition of humility. This is the living description of unbelief and a living description of true faith. This is an example of a life wasted, and this is an example of a life well lived. This is the story of you and me. This is the duality of the struggle of life that we live with every single day. And our text this morning provides us with a tale of two contrasting glories that every human being wrestles with. With every thought, word, and, and action, every one of us is either living for our own glory or we are living for the glory of God. Uh, there really is no in between. And in our brief time today, uh, we have the responsibility to look honestly into uh, ourselves and determine what exactly we're living for. What is our life glorifying? What is our life pointing to? What is our life uh, desiring? And then to make adjustments accordingly. 
So let's look at the passage again. Uh, Gary read it earlier here, but it's worth looking over again to reacquaint ourselves. In Mark chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 38, Mark writes, He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So as we try to determine uh, what or who we are living for, consider two things. The first is, is that we need to grapple with our own glory. We need to grapple with our own glory. I want you to think a minute about what is the biggest issue in your life that you are facing today? What is that one thing in your life that is uh, particularly difficult? Uh, perhaps it's a, it's a volatile relationship. Uh, maybe it is the, this temptation that you have that is all-consuming. Maybe it's that job that is overbearing. Uh, perhaps it is a, it's a chronic illness or uh, chronic pain. Maybe you are absolutely engulfed in, in uh, grief or loss or shame or despair. Perhaps you're facing overwhelming loneliness. Maybe you're just simply overburdened by the relentless tyranny of the everyday drudge of life. Uh, there isn't one of us here that in one way or another wakes up every morning and is not confronted with the harsh reality of living in a fallen world. It's just what we're used to. And these things are common struggles, but that doesn't take away from the fact that they are often accompanied by stress and anxiety and all sorts of disruptive emotions um, resulting in situations that are not pleasant. So I, wanted to, I want you to take that one thing, that one issue, that, that, that thorn in your side, and I would like you to think about why is that there? What is the root issue that you have going on? Just because you're in church doesn't mean that you need to have the churchy answer right now. Be honest with yourself. It's okay to be honest with yourself. Why is this happening? Chances are that most of us view our root problems as external. That person did such and such, and now I have to live with this. I lost my job, and so now I have to wallow in this self-pity and doubt. I have so much on me right now that I don't even know where to start. Or just even thinking about that person makes my blood boil. And to a certain extent, that may be true because you and I are uh, products of our cultures. We're products of our upbringing, of, of our relationships, and so forth. But when we view our struggles as only external, it will often be difficult to not only work through them, but, but to heal from them as well. 
When we view our issues as external, what tends to happen is that we put uh, artificial walls of, of defense around us, whereas we think that everything outside of those walls is evil and bad and everything inside the wall is good and protective. But the thing that we end up missing is the fact that when we hide behind those protective walls, that the evil is right there in, in there with us. It is inside our hearts. Jesus, in our text this morning, very wisely helps us understand what our greatest problem is, what our greatest enemy in life is, and it's not in the outside world, but rather our biggest issue is the person that we see in the mirror every single day. Jesus was teaching in the temple uh, during what we call Holy Week, and after passing through the spiritual inquisition from the the, uh, religious leaders, uh, Jesus goes on the offensive. And so last week we saw that Jesus uh, chipped away at the scribes' authority, Um, And uh, now in Mark 12, starting in verse 38, Jesus goes after them once again. This time it's not about academics. This time it's it's, it's about much more serious matters than, than academics and deadly. Jesus attacks their motivations. And he exposes their core issues or their, their core problems or their, their, their core struggles, you might want to call them. And then he diagnoses the damages. But as we, as we look into this, we need to keep in mind that one issue that you had here just a, a moment ago. Because when we approach a text like this, the, the temptation is uh, to see uh, the scribes as only corrupt leaders as examples of what not to be like. And that everybody else is like that. And this is good to see Jesus railing on these guys. But rather, this text should put a a sharp dagger into our own hearts as well. Look with me in verse 38. So uh, he also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. So let's begin with the surface level things of what's going on here with these scribes, and then we'll start digging uh, in the dirt a little further. What is the problem with the scribes? What is their issue here? Uh, there is uh, the key word here that we find in these verses is the desire, the, the word want. It is a desire. It is this heart-level desire that they have, and we see that this desire is shown in their, uh, their, their lust for attention. Notice it says that they go around in long robes. It wasn't uncommon at that, at that time. And even today with Orthodox uh, Jews, you'll see uh, prayer shawls. These things that kind of have little tassels uh, that are to remind them of who they are. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, you've seen Tevye describe that before. You know, we always keep our heads covered and always wear this little prayer shawl. It, it shows our constant devotion to God. And that's typical. But the scribes were absolutely different. This wasn't a shawl so much as it was a robe. And it was so long that it, it, it touched the ground. And there was all these little frills on the end of it with all these little ornaments in order to show that they're special. That they are academically uh, arrived. Or that these are the guys that know what's up. And so these are the ones that you should come and, come and talk to. And the frequency with which they would wear them was telling. It's really cool to be at a college graduation or graduate or doctor or whatever 
Because as the students are about to process into the area where the graduation is going to happen, you see all the professors wearing their, their doctoral robes coming down. Dave, do you have a robe? You should have wore it today because you would have been a great illustration. Yes. Um, and they're just really cool to, to see. They, they, they look smart. They look dignified. And it's just a special time. But there's no way that you would ever see them going to the supermarket in their academic regalia so that everyone can recognize how super smart they are. That would be absolutely ridiculous and pompous, but yet that is what the scribes were doing here. They would go around town, they'd do their shopping, they'd, they'd visit friends and relatives in their scribal robes in order to show their importance, in order to show their worth and their value. And it's this image that they want to portray at all costs. Further notice that Jesus says that they want, there's that, that word desire again, they want greetings in the marketplace. Now, we live in a small town, and it's not uncommon at all to run into people at, uh, at, at Coburn's that you, that you know. Uh, but isn't it true that there are some times that you go to Coburn's and you're just thinking to yourself, golly, I only have two items that I need. I know right where they are. I'm in my joggers. I'm not in a good mood, and I just want to get my stuff, pay, and get out. But then you get there, and you see the person that comes up to you, and they start having a conversation. It happens to be that person that doesn't understand social cues that this conversation needs to stop. And finally, you get done, and you go into the next aisle, and there's someone else you know. And you spend some more time. It's great. I love living in a small town. But there are instances sometimes when you just want to get what you want to get and get out. The problem for people like me is I don't know where anything is in the supermarket. So I know that I'm going to be staying there for way longer than I need to. So, uh, but here, these scribes, think about someone saying, hey, I'm going to go to Dollar General. I'm not going to buy anything. I'm just going to go there to see if anybody knows me. You want to come with and count the many people that say hi to me? They loved these greetings. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus uh, says that they desired the best seats in church. The average Joe in the synagogue had to sit on the floor. And then there were these benches that were on the sides that would look at the, the congregation. So you can imagine just this, this, this pompous sense of look at all these people who have to sit on the floor. And I get to sit on the seats. And when they look over, what do they do? They see these people of high importance looking over them. This is what the scribes wanted. And notice finally that they desired the head tables at banquets. Why? Because that's the place of prominence. And on top of all that, they devoured widows' houses, which is a sort of shorthand for saying that they were swindling uh, weaker people. They were stealing from vulnerable people. So Jesus here attacks their motivation, which was recognition. They wanted to be seen and thought of as something special. Now, if they were here with us and I asked them the same question that I asked you, what is the biggest issue that you're facing? What is that one thing in your life that is particularly difficult? What do you think their answer would be? I have to think that their answer would have to do something with their desires not being satisfied. My biggest issue is that people don't recognize me as a spiritual leader. That they don't realize how much I can help them. 
That if they knew what was good for them religiously, our lives would be better. They would more than likely never have said, well, my biggest issue is actually my pride and my desire for recognition. And it's doubtful that many of us have such issues in our top 10 list of our life's problems. So when you are consumed with getting the perfect selfie and the perfect filter to get put onto Instagram, you are going to see the world as, a, as the problem. Well, you don't get as many likes as you hoped you would get. When you're in a relational struggle, you are going to take inventory of all the other person's faults and their contributions to this argument while seeing none of your own sinful contributions to that argument. When you are overwhelmed by loneliness, you'll be tempted to blame others for not reaching out and visiting you instead of seeing that you haven't reached out to anyone yourself and tried to remedy things. When you're exhausted and overwhelmed by the relentless tyranny of the, the drudge of every day, you will blame other people. You'll blame your job. You'll blame your spouse, your kids, your boss, and you won't see your own ability to say no or set limits or to take time to decompress. You see, your biggest problem is not your job. It's not your, pro- it's not your, your family, your relationship issues, your pain, or your suffering, as hard as that might be, or your loneliness, or your codependent tendencies. Your biggest issue is what is in your heart. It is what comes from within. It is bent away from seeing our culpabilities and shortcomings and towards self-glorification. You see, the pursuit of self-glorification and denial of responsibility is dangerous to our souls and to the souls of those around us. Notice how Jesus diagnoses now the damage in verse, 38, uh, verse 40. These will receive a harsher judgment This isn't about their leadership position. This is about them as people. Self-glorification might get you accolades here in this world, but in the economy of Jesus, it's only more evidence towards judgment. You must grapple with your own self-glory. You must wrestle with this. You must acknowledge it. It is that important and redirect it then to the only one worthy of glory, Jesus. So that's our second point here, is that we need to give God glory through self-sacrifice. Give God glory through self-sacrifice. If we stopped right there at verse 40, if I were to close up, it would be pretty discouraging. Um, Leaving it at uh, verse 40 would be like a doctor giving you a diagnosis, but then just walking out of the room instead of telling you what what the cure is. Um... Mark helpfully organizes his material here so that we would not be left despondent over this recognition of our self-righteous dispositions. And so he contrasts the pride of the scribes with the simple faith of this, this poor widow. And it's her story, which is just four verses, that if we understood it, we would get the key to life. 
So Jesus is done formally instructing at the temple, but he isn't done teaching yet. Notice in verse 41, he tells his disciples to, um, to go to the temple treasury and so that he can show them something of what true glory looks like. The temple treasury would have been located in the court of women, and that would have been intentional because the court of women was really open up to anybody. Uh, it would have been open up to all Jewish men, Jewish women, Gentiles, whoever it is, because let's be honest, if you're running a 501c3, uh, you're going to want to make sure that you have as much access for the most amount of people to give donations as possible. And so they put it in the place where uh, the most amount of people are able to give with maximum opportunity. And Jesus begins his, his lesson by a simple observation. It says that he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. And he notes that many rich people were putting in large sums. So in saying that Jesus was, was watching uh, this money being dropped in, there would have been three aspects of his, his observation. Notice first that there would have been the sound of the coin dropping into the coffer. Um, the, uh, uh, the temple was all made of stone. So everything echoes. They didn't have sound shells back then. And so you can imagine that if someone's going to go up to a tin coffer and, and drop a coin in there, everyone is going to hear it. Now, you know as well as I do, you can hear the difference between dropping a quarter into something than a dime. It sounds different. It has a heavier weight to it. You can hear the ting of a penny as being different than a, a nickel. And so these people would have understand exa understood exactly what was happening. And second, they would have had a different behavior. Uh, there's no um, textual evidence to back this up, so I'm probably just speculating here. Uh, but I can imagine that the sounds of coins dropping into the, uh, the uh, coffer would have brought up a little sense of pride in these folks. Bunk, 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 bunk. You know, you're walking away. People know exactly how much I have, I have given they're doing good, supporting God in all. And third, notice their heart. And this observation is now implied in the text. Because as we read on, we can deduce that these people gave out of obligation. They gave out of social pressure. Out of a desire only to do the right thing. However, their heart wasn't in it. But yet in walks a poor widow whom Jesus just taught would have been the uh, target for the scribe's scam against widows and the vulnerable. In walks a person who is, who is poor, who is needy, who is weak, who is hungry, who is destitute, who is probably lonely, and this woman lived in a culture in which she would have been entirely dependent on her husband for safety, provision, and livelihood. But yet he's dead. He's not there. And so life would have been very difficult for a widow without children in that culture. For a younger woman, there, yes, there was a chance at remarriage, but someone that had been married prior is probably not going to be the first person to get a rose on The Bachelor. But most of them, or some of these women here, would resort to prostitution in order to survive. Most, however, would end up living a life of a beggar. This is the kind of person that Jesus is drawn to. 
and not in the way that you think. He is not drawn to her simply because she is a poor widow. You can have poor widows, uh, people that are on all economic spectrums, that are just as prideful and just as arrogant as anyone else. But he's drawn to this woman here in particular. He uses her as an example to contrast here. Verse 42, Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Now, we don't exactly know how much that, that is. Some say a penny, uh, whatever. Uh, mathematically, it probably comes down to one thirty-second of a daily wage, which is like nothing. This is, this is nothing to most of us. The average worker... Hey, one thirty-second of, uh, of our daily wage, fine, whatever. But yet Jesus tells his disciples here, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she has or had, all that she had to live on. So Jesus' point here is that all these people gave out of their abundance on their way out of church. And as they did so, they had plans to go and meet their family or friends over at Freddy's after service. And they weren't worried about how the check was going to get paid. They weren't anxious about if the tip was going to be covered. They weren't worried about the bills that are waiting for them in the mailbox, and they certainly aren't troubled about going home and having to have the thermostat way lower than what is comfortable for most of us. They've never received a shut-off notice for their utilities. They haven't understood the concept of what it means to fully rely on God for their daily needs. But this widow does. This widow gives everything that she has because as she walks out of the temple, she might not know where supper is coming from, but she knows that the Lord is well aware of her situation and that he hasn't let her down yet. Now, let me be crystal clear. This text is not about money, okay? So please don't walk out of this service saying that pastor just said that we have to give all of our stuff up, sell it, and give it to the church. That is not what this passage is about. Rather, what God is telling us in this passage is that if we look away from the enticement of self-glorification and we look to the glory of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, then everything changes. Life itself will be different. You can go ahead and you can go chase after the things in, the, in this world. You are absolutely free to go do that. Go and do whatever is up to your, your heart's desire. But as you do, you might put band-aids on your problems, but you will never ever get to the core of what those problems are. You will never understand uh, your sufferings as God's design for you to make you more like Christ. You will only see sufferings and hardship in terms of victimization. You will see bumps in the road as, as the problem in your life rather than the, the direction that Jesus wants to take you. You will live in anxiety because you know that something is deeply flawed in your world and you don't know why. 
And when you don't know why, you don't know what the cure is. Do you think that this widow knew that what she gave was everything that she had? That she had nothing left after giving this? Of course she knew. It was all that she had to support herself. It was the only hope that she had about getting by. And it wasn't enough. So what did she do? She went to the only one that she was confident would take care of her because he had always taken care of her. She went to God in faith saying, what I have isn't enough. I can't fix myself. But what you have is more than enough, Lord. Friends, that is what faith looks like. That is the beginning of healing. That is the beginning of change. When we come to Jesus recognizing our spiritual poverty and giving over our insufficiency, we find that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. And on top of being an all-sufficient Savior, he is an all-encompassing friend. Jesus is good to us. And that issue and that problem that we came up earlier seems... Uh, not only more bearable, but dare I say, useful in God's plan for your life. Because now in Christ, we can view the problems of life not as disruptions, but as opportunities for God to show his might. The ugliness of the world has great potential for showing and displaying the beauty of Christ crucified for us doesn't mean that the circumstances are going to change. The poor widow walked away out of the temple in deeper poverty than she did when she came in. But she also walked out of the temple with far greater gold in her back pocket than the mega millions will ever give you here. This is how Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, it is the best of times. It is the worst of times. It is the age of wisdom. It is the age of foolishness. It is the epoch of belief. It is the epoch of incredulity. It is the season of life. It is the season of darkness. It is the spring of hope. It is the winter of despair. We have everything before us, and we have nothing before us. It all depends 
on which glory you will give. Choose today whom you will trust and give glory to.